Well, good morning. If we have not met, I'm Nathan Brand. I have the privilege to be the senior pastor here. And before we get going, we are dismissing children ages 4 through 1st grade out this north door. And Team Johnson is taking care of Children's Church today. So, be blessed, you guys. Bye, Sissy. Bye, Oliver. Well, last week I had the privilege to be in uh, North Carolina to be at Evan Kluth's wedding. And it was, it was a, a great time. And I, I feel like, actually, this is kind of like Back to the Future Sunday, because I got Ryan and Chris Mulder here in the front row. And what a great privilege to have you guys back. And just to give you some perspective, Grace, who's their oldest here, was a baby when she left. And I, I remember specifically... Uh, your baby being held in the arms of my baby here, Emma. So uh, it's a testimony to God's faithfulness. So, but it was uh, wonderful to have you guys here. Wonderful to be in North Carolina to celebrate with Evan and his bride, Claire. But in traveling to North Carolina, I found some things are, uh, you know, the same and yet different in North Carolina. People in North Carolina are very friendly. They'll talk to you, you know, uh, just on the beach. How you doing? And, uh, but the funny thing is, everything is a little bit relative, too. I was in a Walmart, and a guy started engaging me. And, said, and then he said, yeah, I knew you weren't around from here because you have an accent. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, I am not. You're right. But everything is relative, right? And then we had the privilege to be uh, in the beach and uh, in the water and get in the water. And, and the next door neighbor of the place said, yeah, we can tell you're not ever from around here because the water's too cold. And he's like, okay, this is the polar plunge area, you know, so cold is, is uh, relative. But one thing is not relative. Either you're putting your faith in Jesus Christ and all that he's done, or you're not. You know, one of the things that's true about other faith systems is most of them are built upon what I can do to reach God. Whether that's keeping the rules or, you know, uh, doing good deeds, acts of devotion, of prayer and sacrifice, uh, attaining a greater sense of spiritual consciousness, even a self-salvation on the secular level through technology and science. It's all our attempts to reach God. On the other hand, true faith in Christ is all about what God has done to reach you and me. In the person of Jesus Christ. Trusting in what He's done. And that message isn't always welcome. Because it means you have to admit your spiritual poverty, that you're a debtor to God. It means admitting you can't do anything to reach God. And it means putting your faith in the exclusiveness of Jesus. His salvation, His reconciliation, His fullness to bring us to Himself. And so we're back in our series through the letter to Paul's letter to the Colossians. So you can open your Bibles up there. We'll be in chapter 2 today again. And Paul is addressing a young church who have put their faith in Christ. But there are plenty in the city of Colossae, and I would say even in the town of Rochester here, who point to a different way to be reconciled, to be connected to God outside of Christ. And even more so, there are even spiritual beings 
who, if they can't deceive us to seek a different way outside of Christ, well, then they seek to, through accusation, degrade and dismiss what Christ has done. But we'll actually see as we look in this passage today that what seemed to be Jesus' defeat actually was his victory, his decisive victory, and the answer to our accusers to put them on public display even as conquered foes. So I'm excited about this passage today. Let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll dig in. Lord Jesus, you are our King of Kings. And uh, we thank you that you've come for us. Indeed, it is what you've done. And I thank you for the declaration out of your word that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So would you help us to see that today? Would you help us to make you our firm foundation? Lord, and if there's somebody who has not received the gift of your salvation, who have not put their faith in Christ, would you open the eyes of their hearts today that they might respond to you? But do, through this passage, your work in us and through us. So Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. Colossians, chapter 2, and we're going to go back to verse 8, which we ended with the last time we were in Colossians. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been given fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. And in him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self-ruled by the flesh, your whole self-ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ, for he gave us, for he He forgave us all our transgressions, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Again, the gospel has come to Colossae. The gospel has come to us. But there are, there, there are those who are calling for us to put our faith in something else besides Christ. And I call it a false confidence. Again, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And the text is not fully clear as what the false teaching that they're engaging here in Colossae. Some thinks it's Greek elementalism. Some thinks it's uh, Judaizing mysticism. could be a combination of both. There could be two different groups that are trying to influence them. It's really not clear. 
but it, is, there's, it includes hollow and deceptive philosophy. There's a feign of belief in Christ, but they always make him less than what he's revealed himself to be. Uh, whether that's a strict uh, adherence to the law or esoteric, higher plane spiritual experiences or seeking divinity in nature itself. It's empty, it's hollow, it's deceptive, and it depends on human tradition. Idolatry, given divine authority to what humans habitually practice or feel comfortable with. And number three, the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Principles that you see in creation. Well, you see, this is how nature works, so therefore it must be true. It passes as knowledge. Elements in the cosmic uh, bodies in the, in the stars, or angels or spirits or demons. We're really not clear what's going on here. It's what, what the faith system they're being challenged to put their faith in. But one thing is true. It's without Christ. It's not fully dependent upon Christ. It's what I can do to reach God. At best, it's wishful thinking. At worst, it's idolatry of making God meet me on my own terms. But instead, what God offers is fullness in Christ. What God has done to reach us. And there are many aspects, and the first is that God came in the flesh. Verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. This points to Jesus being God. It's three times in this, in this letter, it's, it's uh, affirmed. In verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. In verse 16, by him all things were made through him and to him. And verse 19 in chapter 1, God was pleased to have his fullness dwell within him. But I don't think that's the main point. I think the main point is that God put on flesh. And all of his fullness came in the flesh. It's what God did to reach you and me, to reach out and redeem us. That Emmanuel. It's what John 1.14 says when he says, And the Word dwelt among us. He lived among us. He put on flesh. Lived among us. And explained who he is. And what he did, does in living this life is live a life of perfect obedience that we can't. He pays a penalty we can't in dying on the cross. And then he's raised to life to conquer the foe that we can't conquer. What he offers is God come to us to rescue us. God with skin on to buy us back to himself. He in him is the fullness of deity. And then there's a play on words. Because what is given to him in the fullness of deity is given to us in fullness. Verse 10. And in Christ you've been brought to fullness. You see, God, he who is the fullness of God, offers fullness in what we lack. And in this letter itself, we were once enemies of God. Now in Christ we're reconciled to him. Chapter 1, verse 21. We were once under the dominion of darkness, but now we're under the kingdom of the Son He loves. Chapter 1, verse 13. And once hope was hidden from us, 
But now in Christ, the mystery is made known to us that we are God's people. We are His saints. Chapter 1, verse 13. And there's so much more. Here's the point, though. Jesus is the access point. He's the connection for reconciliation, adoption, and a glorious future in Him and all the life that God wants to give us. Paul says in his letter to Timothy in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 5, that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. In essence, everything that we lack, He fills. His fullness comes to us. That's why we talk about putting on Christ, as Romans 13, 14 talks about. And His authority will protect us. The second half of verse 10. He is head over every power and authority. Now this will come more into play when we get to verse 15. But we're talking about most likely spiritual beings here. Angels, demons, even including Satan himself, who is the prince of the power of the air, who is the god of this world, who influences worldly powers, governments, people, and mostly in rebellion and seeks to deceive us and lead us astray. But here's the truth. Jesus is their creator, as we find out in chapter 1, verse 16. He is their head, and they will be brought to heal. And in Christ we have protection. Next is his circumcision is a better one. Verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Circumcision in the Old Testament was a cutting away of the foreskin of a a male part. It becomes the mark of the covenant between God and his old covenant people. Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 through 11, that's what God comes and says, you must circumcise every male among you. And later on becomes the identification of those in the Old Testament who are committed to following God's Old Testament law. But now Jesus has come, a Jewish Messiah. What do we do with this circumcision thing? And there are those who are saying, no, we, we need to continue with this. If you want to be you know, God's people, you have to continue with this circumcision. But this is, the problem is there's a new covenant here. Something is being put away. And here's the problem. Circumcision does not change the heart. Circumcision does not make you more obedient. And over and over in the Old Testament, God is saying, your hearts need to be circumcised. There needs to be a spiritual change in you. And what Jesus brings is a new covenant, a new circumcision, not done by hands, but by the Holy Spirit. His circumcision is putting off the reliance on the flesh, but rather upon the Holy Spirit. And that starts by a spiritual rebirth, by putting your faith in Christ. To be born again, as Jesus talks about in John chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. The Apostle Paul explains it in his letter to the Philippians like this in chapter 3, verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision, 
we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. To rely on the circumcision of the flesh in the Old Covenant is to miss a better covenant, a better circumcision, a putting off a reliance on the flesh and relying on the Holy Spirit and experiencing the fullness of Jesus filling up what we lack. And then it goes on talking about our identification in baptism showing God's power. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, this is just an in-house commentary, but I want to, to just hear this. This is something I learned in seminary. Our, there are some brothers and sisters who believe in infant baptism. And one of the reasons they point to is because they look at this as evidence that baptism is the sign of, of the new covenant. And to be a part of the covenant community is to be baptized into Christ. I, I don't fully uh, buy into that thinking and that logic, but that's, that's where they're coming from. I just want you to know that's, that's the thought behind this. That this is the replacement of the sign of the covenant. But here's the truth. The act of baptism is very symbolic. It's very symbolic. When we baptize somebody, we put them under the water, right? To identify with the death of Christ. And then when we bring them back up, they're identifying with the resurrection or the life of Christ. That's what's going on. They're saying, what Jesus did in dying, that's for me. What Jesus did in rising from the dead, that's for me. That's where I'm putting my faith. You see, the act of baptism is not efficacious in itself. It's just getting wet. But if you are entering into that reality of what Christ has done for you, well, that's where it becomes efficacious. That's where it becomes that public de declaration, I am Christ's. What He has done, that's for me. His death, His life, that's for me. That's the power of that moment. And if some of you haven't taken that step and want to, we're going to be doing that this summer. I mean, I'm not going to put a specific date out there today because my staff will say, what are you talking about? But we're probably going to do it sometime in July. So just be looking for that to be coming out. But if that's the next step you want to take in obedience and making that public declaration, that'll be an opportunity coming up. But again, it's entering into Christ's fullness. His death, His resurrection. Then in verse 13, His divine personal initiative is life-giving. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. The last aspect of Christ's fullness that Paul lists here is given to us in God's divine initiative. Specifically for these, these Colossians, who are mostly Gentiles. 
That's their background. They probably didn't have much background as far as knowing this Yahweh, this God of the Jews, right? But then all of a sudden the gospel comes. And they're finding out about what this, this person came, lived, and died and rose from the dead and is offering me salvation. And all of a sudden, what was once a mystery, which once they were ignorant of, it's made known to them. And they're entering into this. But you see, they didn't make the first move. They didn't take the initiative. God did. God did in sending Christ and coming to this earth and dwelling among us. There's something powerful, the fact that Jesus lived this life and He lived it in a way that none of us could. And that He did die and that He rose from the dead. It is a powerful thing that changes our hearts. But again, it's what God did. It's not what we did. And this is true of all humanity, I think. We didn't make the first move. God did. Romans 5, 6. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, when we were stuck, when we were clueless, when we had no power in ourselves, Christ died for us. It's what God did to bridge the gap between Himself, a holy God, and sinful mankind who are made in His image. In Christ, what was separated from a holy God through sin, that thing is removed if you're in Christ. And so we enter into what I call the cross's conquest. Let's go back to the end of verse 13. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. Paul tells us the final result is all of our sins are forgiven. Not some. All of our sins are forgiven. Do you believe that? That all, if you are in Christ, that all of your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. How did he do it? They were canceled, and that he, what, he canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. See, we were in God's debt. And I know you all know this, most of you. We were in God's debt. To the holy, righteous, eternal creator of the universe, we failed to obey Him. We failed to love Him. We failed to seek Him. We failed to acknowledge Him. We failed. And we owe him a debt because we want to do our own thing. This is probably why in Luke chapter 4, verse 11, it, 
Jesus is quoted as saying, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who are indebted to us. We are indebted to a holy God. And that debt is formidable. That debt is formidable. When Jesus tells the the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, 24, the king or the one who lends out the money is owed 10,000 talents of gold. I don't know if you've done some calculation of of what that means in today's society as far as money. But, you know, a talent is roughly 75 pounds. Gold, a pound has 16 ounces. Gold is currently about $1,864.46 today. You multiply that times 10,000. Do all the math, it translates out to roughly 22 billion dollars. dollars. What Jesus is trying to convey is you're not paying that debt back. If you or I were hit with that bill, we go, <laughs> I'm dead. There's no way. There's no way. And you're right, there is no way. That was Jesus' point. We needed something to cancel that debt. But Jesus doesn't go, oh, oh, okay, we'll let that go. No problem. We'll just write it off as a tax write-off. That's not how it works. Jesus, the living God who is the source of all righteousness and goodness says, no, there's a debt and it needs to be paid. And so I'll pay it. I will pay it. He comes and cancels the debt of our sin. The charges that are against us. He cancels it by paying it himself. And I've already tipped my hand how he does it. By placing this here. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. By nailing it to the cross. In the Gospel of John, Jesus' last words are tetelestai, which in Greek means it is finished or it's paid in full. That debt is paid by Jesus going to the cross. We express it oftentimes in the third verse of, It is well with my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Wow. Jesus cancels that debt. And he nails it to the cross. What 
What an amazing thought. What an amazing thing to lean into. But it's not just the conquest of sin itself. It goes on to talk about it's a conquest of the spiritual forces that we mentioned in verse 10. And what's interesting about them, on one hand, these spiritual forces are in rebellion against the living God. Who's made them? Right? And yet they're bringing against they're bringing against us, those who are made in God's image, His image bearers, accusations of why we should be rejected by a holy God. That we have failed to meet God's standard. One of the things about Satan is he's called the accuser of the brethren. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. It's like a prosecuting lawyer. Let me tell you what I know about Chris. Let me tell you what I know about Hayden, about Carrie, about Nathan. That accusation. And it's true. Most of it is true. We have failed in our obedience, our love towards God, our attitude. But he's canceled the debt. He's nailed it to the cross. Again, what a great thing to revel in. And in doing this, Jesus declares a public victory over our accusers. Jesus declares a public victory over our accusers. Verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The word picture is a conquering general bringing in his vanquished foes into the city in chains. And there's a celebration of the conquering hero's victory. It just, this was very true. In the Roman Empire, it just happens to be the spiritual forces of this dark world, the spiritual forces of the, in the heavenly realms. As Ephesians 2, Ephesians 6, 12 talks about. They are a defeated foe at the cross. But here's where the, here's where the application comes today. Even though they are a defeated foe, they keep trying to throw out the accusations, don't they? The accusations of our failure, of our shortcomings, of not measuring up. They're looking to deceive, discourage, and degrade who we are in Christ. You ever hear these voices? Look at what you've done. You're such a hypocrite. If only people knew about this or that. If only God knew. Oh, by the way, He does. But accusations are not always based in truth. You're a failure as a spouse, as a parent. As a pastor, as a Christian. 
You don't have what it takes. Anyone ever hear those voices? I do every Monday morning after preaching God's Word. Anyone ever hear those voices? And the truth is, I don't have what it takes. But Jesus does. And I've been given fullness in Him. He's canceled my debt. He's nailed it to the cross. And it's in His fullness I live in the now. Set free from those accusations. But not yet. Because I am God's workmanship. And if you're in Christ, you're His workmanship. And He's working to make you more like Jesus Christ. And He's not done. But He's still working on you. And He'll bring all of my brokenness, all of your brokenness, all of our failure into perfect conformity with His will one day. And that's something we can lean into with hope as well. Satan and his forces are a defeated foe. I don't know where everyone's at here in this room, spiritually. But if you have not put your faith in the fullness of Jesus Christ, and all that He has to offer you, which is life, which is reconciliation, which is adoption, which is His glorious future and transformation. I want to tell you, He's come for you, my friend. It's our familiar verses. And maybe you've heard them. But God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He wants to give that to you. And then that same Gospel, it says, to as many as believed in Him, to as many as received Him, even to those who believed in His name, to them He gave the right to become the children of God. Maybe today, You've been holding off because you're afraid that somehow God's going to take life away from you. No, He wants to give you His life. He wants to give you perfect standing before Him and a glorious future. And maybe that's something you want to respond to today. So I'm going to pray for you here in a minute. But today I want, I want to take a risk with you who are in Christ. And I would like to ask Eli and Josiah to come and help get prepared for this. I want you to lean into the truth of this passage today. Because every day you're hearing the accusations of the accuser. And I don't know what those are. I know what mine are. It's on my, my list here. And you've got a piece of paper there in front of you on your, on your chair. And here's what I'd like you to do. This is, I'm not asking you to create an exhaustive list. But those accusations that come after you frequently, day after day, you're not enough, you're a failure. Whatever it is, people only knew. I want you to write those down. And then, when you're ready, 
I'd like you to come up front. And we're not parading before each other. This is not, this is not us demonstrating or flexing our muscles before each other. It really is leaning into what God has done. And if, if you don't feel comfortable with this, that's okay. But what I want you to do, if you feel like you want to do it, is come up, take your piece of paper, and fold it in two. And there's a little stamp here. It says canceled here. And I want you to lean into what Jesus has done. If I learn how to work this thing. Okay, yeah. It does work. There we go. Because Jesus has canceled those accusations against you. And then I'd like you to come to the cross. And we've secured it pretty well, so don't worry about it falling over. Well, there's some nails in here. I'd like you to take it Just two taps. To remember what Jesus has done. He's nailed the accusation against you to his cross. He has paid it in full. Again, this is not about us praying in front of each other. It's just leaning into what Jesus has done. Maybe it's a time of confession. To remember that If we confess our sins, He is faithful. He is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Maybe it's a time of being set free from those accusations that come in you day in and day out and they're crippling you. Maybe this is a step of faith towards, no, I'm going to walk towards who I am in Christ. If nothing else, just to celebrate the truth of what Jesus has done. I'm probably not going to preach this passage ever again in my time here at Berean. But what a great visceral lesson of faith of what Jesus has done. So Carrie's going to play a little bit here and then the worship team will come up and lead us in worship as well. But if you want to do this, take some time. Write those things down. Come up, mark it canceled just as Christ has and nail it to the cross just as he has. And if you need a pen, Cliff has got a few. Kelly's got a few. Paul's got a few. So raise your hand if you need a pen. We'll take some time here and do that.